Welcome to the Ground Effect Podcast. My name is Brian Clough, and this is From the Ashes. From the Ashes is our series about mental health. Mental health when it comes to public safety and people in the medical field. On today's episode, we talk with Josh Kios, host of the What Makes Us Fire podcast. Josh's podcast is meant to shed light on the lives of firefighters and all that surround them. Listen in as we talk about mental health, philosophies, and what makes us move. Thank you for coming on to What Makes Us Fire. Um, you are trying for the first time a dual cast with me. Yes. I want to know about you. Um, you know, who you are, what you do, and why you're here. Um, I'm here because a long time ago, my parents met and they had hanky panky one night. No, I'm just <laughs> start from the beginning, right? The typical story. No, start, if you want to know, I'll tell you where I came from. You might not like the story. No, man, that's awesome. Um, so usually how I do my podcast is real simple, man. I, I say, thank you for coming on to what makes us fire, which we've done already. And then I like to have my audience kind of get to know who you are. Uh, so as always, I always ask my guests where they come from, but I also like to tell a story of how we met, how we got in contact, which is actually fairly simple. Uh, it's a very simple story. Uh, Miss Sarah Ann, the outdoor medic, is actually the person that turned me to you. Um, she said that you're somebody that I should definitely talk to, that you had a lot of good information. And so she really talked you up. Uh, please don't disappoint. <laughs> I hate when people talk like, me up. <laughs> yeah, right. So I I like your content that you have on Instagram and that you have on TikTok. You put some pretty good messages out there. And for my, the audience that doesn't know, Brian here is actually a flight medic. So he is a medic that instead of being on an ambulance, gets to ride around in a helicopter all day. So most of what Brian sees are is what I assume heavy trauma and then and or extreme medical such as stroke or heart attack. Um, everything else in between, Brian doesn't have to see. He leaves us. He leaves that to those peons, those first responders, <laughs> those firefighters and the medics riding on the box. My favorite people. He leaves. Yeah, he leaves those uh you know, stub my toe three o'clock in the morning calls to us. But Brian is somebody that I think you guys need to go follow. He puts some great information out there and he kind of puts a lot of the stuff into perspective that I think is good for the general public to see. And not only the general public, our brothers and sisters um, in the civil service, first responders, cops as well, because all that information that he's putting out there we can all learn from. He might have seen something that we haven't. And just that 60 seconds of information can be something that may help us or not. And Brian, I want to say thank you for putting that kind of information out there, man. Um, you're, you're by no way giving medical advice because that is technically illegal. Right. You're not giving medical advice. You're not claiming that this is going to work for everybody. And I want to make that clear. However, the advice and the information you do put out is general advice that I think can help people. And you're, you're kind of giving a little bit of a sneak peek to the life of a flight medic, which not a lot of people know about, right? Not a lot of people. I mean, they right. just see the helicopter in the air. They don't know how many people are in that helicopter. They don't know how it operates. And you're giving them a little bit of a sneak peek into that. And that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. 
that's pretty cool. So I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Um, I, I know you talk a lot about mental health as well within the service, and that's something I'm sure we're going to dive into. But let's let the What Makes Us Fire family know where you're from. Where did the mind of Brian come from? Where did that flight medic come from? So that, that, that's a difficult place to get into. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a very deep mine, but um, it's here. So uh, I'm originally from Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Uh, my career started, I started out as a fire explorer, um, which is basically a junior fire cadet type program, depending on what you call it, depending on where you're from, uh, in a small town in Massachusetts. And that's really where I got my love for what I do. Um, my family's full of firefighters, my family's full of public servants, full of nurses, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's bred into me, you know, like most of us, it's either bred into us or we just somehow fall into it. I was lucky to have enough, lucky enough to have it bred into me. And I've just loved it ever since. Um, graduated high school. As soon as I graduated high school, I went to EMT school. Uh, I spent some time as an EMT for just a private ambulance company doing a little bit of 911 work as well as a um, volunteer fire department and uh, spent about three years as an EMT, became a paramedic. Um, and I loved it. And that's kind of where I made my choice to decide on what I wanted to do. So my whole life growing up, I wanted to be a firefighter, wanted to be a firefighter, wanted to be a firefighter. Once I got into medicine, that's where I really decided that the firefighting is great, but it's not really what I want to do. I love what I do when it comes to being a paramedic. I love being able to help people in a different way. I get more information. You know, a lot of times, unfortunately, the firefighters um, that I'm exposed to is they don't, you know, they love the fire stuff and that's great. That's awesome. But they don't want to necessarily train as much on the medical stuff. And that's where I loved it, you know. Hey, you have an opportunity to go ride the fire truck today. Well, no, I'll, I'll, I'll stand at the fire scene and ride the ambulance all day if I want, you know? Um, so I kind of what, fell into that. What do you think it was about? Because that's interesting, right? Because it's, it is like you said, and I've noticed it too. Hey, you have a choice between the box of the truck today. What do you want? Well, I'm going to take the truck. Right. right. And, and I, I think in general, that's the sentiment. So you're, you're, you're part of the few, right? right. You're part of the few that chooses the box over the engine or the truck right you choose the ambulance and what what part of that could you could you do you know what it is is it just something unexplainable because it, it's interesting to hear somebody choosing the ambulance over the truck now i know a couple of other people but you didn't just choose the ambulance over the truck like you chose medicine over fire right where when you talk to people that wanted to become firefighters, like there's no way that would ever happen. And you're, you're an exception to that rule. Do you, do you know what it is? What was it? Or is it just something that was just unexplainable and you just knew that that wasn't your passion, that this was your passion, that medicine was? So I think at the beginning, I didn't know why, you know, I just had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun on the ambulance. You know what I mean? It's a different fire EMS police. Everybody in public safety is a different breed of people. But even within that, I mean, a cop is different than a firefighter. A firefighter is different than a medic. You know, you can be a fire medic, but, you know, you're still either a firefighter or you're a medic, you know, just personality wise and stuff like that. When it came to the medicine over the fire, I think I just. Over the what? Over fire. So mm -hmm. I think I just kind of navigated towards, you know, research and wanting to know more about, you know, what is wrong with this person? And you know, why, why are they having this problem? What caused it? All right. What can I do to better myself when it comes to treating them? You know, and I just kind of dug down that rabbit hole and the deeper and deeper I got, the more and more I enjoyed it. 
I enjoyed more and more learning about, you know, the different physiologies of why people have heart attacks, you know, how to make uh, myself what? better, the different physiology, mm-hmm. you know, like, like what causes it, what causes heart attacks, what causes strokes, how can I be better? And I think that I just loved that side so much that I kind of fell down towards the medicine. And I felt like I was doing a lot more for the individual person where I worked, you know, the fire service where I worked, it was a lot of just, you know, hauling bags, pushing stretchers, stuff like that. We didn't have a lot of actual care when it came to being on the engine. Um, Down where I am now, I'm in Florida now, they do a lot more care. So maybe it would be a little bit different if I started down here. But up north where I started, it was a lot of, you're the ambulance service, you do all the patient care, we're just here to carry your bags, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that I really enjoyed the fact that I was able to help people as an individual. You know what I mean? I could walk in there and I could really do something to change somebody's day. And that that's really what drove me to that, um, that side of things, I think. Or it's just that I'm that mentally unstable that, you know, it's what I like. <laughs> well, um, so, you, but you did do some fire. What? Yeah. Well, did you, were you ever a volunteer? Did you ever actually put bunker gear on? Like, yep. So I was on a, uh, it was a paid on call department. So it, we were a small department, um, but it was all, um, we were the only department within the town. We were surrounded by um, full-time departments, other volunteer departments. It was a good mix of everything. We had our own ambulance at the fire department, but we were only BLS. So we only did um, just basic stuff, you know, the backboarding, the splinting, stuff like that. Our right. ALS came from um, either AMR or one of the surrounding fire departments. So I, I saw a lot of good in being a paramedic. And that's what drove me to being a paramedic in the first place was seeing how much more I could do. And then once I became a paramedic, that's what stuck me towards um, wanting to stay in the box and just the firefighting, you know, putting the bunker gear on fighting the fire and stuff like that. It's great. You get that adrenaline rush, but I feel like the rest of the time I kind of, I sat back, you know, and I watched and, you know, we do training, we do videos and stuff like that, but it didn't really give me the fire that, you know, medical training did. You know, I really enjoyed the medical training. I wanted to do it. I, I um, searched for it out on my own versus the fire training. It was, okay, you have to go do this. You have to do that. And it's like, okay, I'll do it. But because I have to, not because I want to necessarily. Oh, uh, okay. So the want was a bitch. Well, I would say a bit. It was a lot stronger when it came to the medical stuff than, than the fire. Very. Did you find that as, as being a surprise, seeing as you grew up wanting to be a firefighter, were you surprised that this realm was... Holy crap. Very. Um, I, and I've got, I tell everybody this. The only reason I, I became a paramedic was in order to be a full-time firefighter, I had to be a paramedic. That's literally the only reason why I wanted to go to medic school was to be a firefighter. Um, medic school was a pain. It was a long time. Our medic school was about two years long between ride time and everything like that. So it, it was probably one of the hardest times of my life. Um, but then once I actually started working as a paramedic, I was like, no, this is what I want to do. Like, I don't want to do this fire stuff anymore. This is where I want to be. So it was, it was a good choice and I'm glad that I did it for sure. Hell yeah. And I think nationally, uh, fire departments are actually going to that. No, the department that I work for, we just absorbed the city's health department, which included, uh, 911 emergency response, medical Mm -hmm. response. So we absorbed them about six, seven years ago. Um, and, Nobody told you that the growing pains would continue to go and six, seven years later. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And anybody listening out there, anybody that wants to become a firefighter or first responder, if you want to work for a big city, you're going to have 
to get your paramedic. It's just moving in that direction. That's the direction it's going. Uh, cities are finding it easier to have the fire department and uh, EMS department combined. It's just easier to manage that way. It's all emergency response. Firefighters are first responders and EMTs too. Um, when we go to calls, we're the first ones to pull out somebody that's hurt. So who better to start treating him than the person that pulled him out, you know? So just know that if you don't want to be in the medical field whatsoever, you better start looking now for a fire department that doesn't require you to do that because it's moving in that direction. It definitely is. So what made you go down the path you go, what made you want to be a firefighter? You know, did you, did you, did you do something beforehand? Did you, you know, go bang nails? Did you, man. So <laughs> my history is crazy leading up to finding out that being a firefighter was what I was wanting and what I felt I was meant to do. Uh, when I was younger, 16, 17 years old, I, I really found a passion for acting and I always wanted to be an actor. I loved being on stage. I loved performing, um, writing, music, all of it. But I was also, I also loved football. I also loved track. I also loved hanging out with, uh, I love horseback riding, hanging out with the FFA members, hung out with the goss, hung out with the jocks, hung out with the drama geeks. I was in choir. Like I was a little bit, I didn't have, you know, in high school, everybody has their little section. Yep. I didn't have one. I was, I roamed everywhere. I had a little bit of friends in all little sex, but I found that being an actor is what I wanted to do. So to start that career, my parents got me into modeling. So I started modeling at 16, 17 years old, 18 years old. That's, that's how I actually first met my wife. We met modeling. We didn't stay together. That's just when I first met her. We were both models. But uh, the modeling was going good in Houston. It's not a great market. So after high school, um, my uncle was a ballroom dance instructor in New Mexico. And I figured, well... I can be a triple threat, go learn how to dance, know how to act, sing, and dance. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I'll go do that. So I taught ballroom dance for about a year in New Mexico. So if you want to learn how to do the waltz <laughs> or the cha-cha or the merengue or the rumba or, you know, the East Coast swing, West Coast swing, jitterbug, jive, you name it, I can teach you the basic steps and you can impress any lady any lady so <laughs> and you know after that i found that i was like well you know what i'm forgetting about this acting part i really want to i really want to act yeah i was able to do performances with the other instructors we'd go do performances but that was all promo stuff right we'd go do a show in hopes that people would come sign up and be in come to the studio and learn how to dance well at that point i wanted to go to california because what better place, right? I couldn't afford LA. My dad was in San Diego. I told him, hey, I'm gonna come stay with you. I'm gonna try this acting thing out. And so that's what I did and it didn't work out. It did not work out. I, and it's all on me. I could have pushed harder. I really could have, but mm -hmm. I didn't. Did a few student films, did a few um, competitions with acting and it all of it was great, good work. We won 
best acting in a few of the competitions, you know, made some good friends and everything, but it just wasn't working out. So I came back to the Houston area to live with my mother and my stepfather and my stepfather. I love him to death. He's like, I, I call him my stepfather for uh, labeling purposes, but he's just as much as my dad as my other dad. Um, they said, well, if you're going to come back and live with us, no more bullshit. You're either going to go to good school or you're going to go to work. You're not living here for free. So I was just like, well, I'll go to school. I was tired of working. I was tired of doing it. I'll go to school. I was literally driving to the community college, had my girlfriend at the time, had the course book in her hands. And I said, look up certifications. I don't know what the hell I'm going to sign up for. So she starts listing certifications, welder, mechanic, all these things. And then she said, firefighter. And I was just like, whoa, that sounds cool. Um, I like helping people. I like hard work. I love manual labor. Yeah, let, let's do that. And went there, talked to the counselor. She was just like, you know, the fire department's moving to EMT. You might want to get your EMT basic before you start the fire academy. That way you can just concentrate on the fire academy. I was like, okay, cool. I'll do that. EMT basics, just one semester. No big deal. First day, opened the book, hooked. Hooked. Like, it, it, it wasn't even the pictures. It wasn't the gore. It was the text. Mm -hmm. Teaching you how to mitigate an injury or an illness and how the human body worked and how you, a person, can change that physiology to make them stay alive to change that injury, to make them stay alive. And I was hooked. I was like, okay, yeah, this, this is it. This is the realm I was meant to do. I'm going to stick with this realm. So I got my EMT basic, went back to California. Cause I was like, well, if I'm not going to be an actor in California, I'll be a firefighter in California. I liked California. It was beautiful weather. A lot of the people were cool. Politics weren't really on my side there, but you know, it was just way too expensive. Right. Um, the, manager at In-N-Out Burger was making more than the paramedic that I was riding with. And I just like, nah, can't do that. Back to Texas I go. And, you know, I did, I, I came back to Texas and then at the time paramedic had three different levels here in Texas is your EMT basic, intermediate, and then your paramedic. Well, I went through my intermediate process uh, before they got rid of the intermediate process, it was intermediate and then I-99 and then paramedic, right? Yep. Well, the only difference between those two is cardiac drugs. It's the only difference mm -hmm. because you can innovate, you can do everything else as an intermediate, but the cardiac drugs are kind of where it stops for intermediates. Uh, I could have went and finished and got my paramedic, Cardiac drugs scare the shit out of me. <laughs> they do. I, I, I will 100% admit I did not go through with it because I am not comfortable with cardiac drugs. And that's not to say that I, I could have learned exactly everything I needed to do with them. Mm -hmm. I could have learned how to administer them. I could have learned I'm good at math. I know how to get dosages right. I could have done all that stuff. I would have known exactly how to do it and been confident in how to do it. But the fact that I'm pushing a denison into somebody and I'm literally intentionally stopping their heart 
freaked me out because it would be my fucking luck <laughs> that it didn't start beating again. You right. know, um, I know it's very rare. Like I understand that I, logically, I understand all that, but I just it freaks me out. It freaks me out. Risk versus you reward. Know? Yeah, you know. Um, so once I finished my intermediate, I finally was able to start the fire academy. And that's when I really knew, okay, yeah, I'm here because this is what I believe I was meant to do. Like, I truly believe I'm a firefighter because this is what I was meant to do with my life, was to be a firefighter. And the way I contribute to this world is being this. And it, from, that, from that point on, it's, it's pretty much, you know, that's it. I, I, I just dedicated my life to firefighting. Um, I started off in a volunteer department uh, after I graduated the fire academy. Um, I was a firefighter during Hurricane Ike in the Houston area. And I live literally 15 minutes away from the coast. So, you know, I was, lived, I was at the station for about almost two weeks. I lived at the station for almost two weeks. I had CNN follow my crew around while we were searching houses and marking them, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I, at that point, I would, again, it was just constant reassurance that this is what you were meant to do. Um, a gentleman at the uh, volunteer department that I was at was saying, hey, my career department has a test going. I signed up, took the test. And then I would say six, seven months later, I get a phone call. While my wife is getting ready to push my son out <laughs> in the hospital, literally the day my son is being born, I get the phone call that. I am hired and I need to come finish the paperwork. Um, and from that point, it's I've been with the department that I'm with now for 11 years on November 9th, marked 11 years. So just what, yesterday? Yeah, yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. Today's November 10th. Yeah, so yesterday it marks 11 years with the career department that I've been with, but I've been in the realm of civil service since 06. So... But yeah, man, I, it was literally just happenstance on how I found this is the realm of what I wanted to do. And I will never look back and I will never second guess anything else in my life because when it comes to the career, because this it's what I love. It's what I feel like I was meant to do. And I just have a passion for it. Awesome. Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's one of two paths. It's never somebody kind of who... It's always, it either just sneaks up on you and then that's it. Or it's, you know, you were born and bred and this is what you're going to do for your whole life. It's so funny how that happens. And it's funny having the two different stories sitting right here. You know, it was born into me, bred into me. That's the way it's going to be versus someone who just, it was nothing. And then all of a sudden one day that's what popped up. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it it really is. And I hear both stories too. And I've had guests on that it comes both stories, you know, where, they just have a generational lineage of being in the fire service or civil service, whether it be cop or fire. Mm -hmm. And then I've had people that are like, well, my dad was a firefighter, but I never thought I wanted to be one until boom. Right. And it's crazy how it happens. And it's crazy how it takes hold of you. Yeah. Once you actually start it, 
the grip it puts on you is insane. Definitely. I just, I don't under, it, it's weird. It's unexplainable. What, now I'm going to get a little bit into, onto you now. What, sure. where and when did you decide, you, you were a medic on the box for a while. Yep. What, what pushed you to become a flight medic? So I kind of, when I became a paramedic and really decided that that's what I wanted to do um, and do the medicine side of things, that's kind of when I decided that, no, this is what I want to do. I want to be a flight medic because that is the, that is the end goal for most people who want to be paramedics. Either you go into med school, you go to nursing school, or you become a flight medic. You know, um, I don't want to be a doctor, that's for sure. And it just, I, I don't want it, <laughs> you know, um, nursing school, nurses are great. I love nurses and, you know, but it's just, it's just not me. It's not what I want to do. It's not the identity that I want to have, um, as far as being a nurse, you know what I mean? I got no problem mm-hmm. doing everything they do, you know, wiping butts, pushing meds, all this stuff, everything that a nurse does, I respect absolutely. And there is absolutely a place for them, but being a paramedic is what I love. You know what I mean? I love our autonomy. I love what we can do. And being a flight medic is the, the pinnacle of that. You know, we can do so much more. We can do so much. The program I work for, thankfully, um, our roles are equal when it comes to nurses and medics. Some of the programs you go to, you know, the medic is pretty much responsible for airway stuff, anything from the neck up, whereas the nurses mm-hmm. are responsible for pretty much everything down. The program I work at, where I'm very thankful and very grateful that we are equals. Everything I can do, my nurse can do. Everything my nurse can do, I can do. And it's our strengths and weaknesses that really make us better. And being that flight medic and having been having been that medic on the ground on the ambulance, that's a brand new medic sitting there with my hands bloody, you know, blood everywhere, all over the truck, sitting there with a bloody ET tube and a bloody laryngoscope in my hand and knowing as soon as those two in the flight suit walk through that door, that everything's going to be okay. It might not be because especially now being a flight medic, I know that it may be a complete cluster, but Mm -hmm. we have to make it look good. And just that calm that they brought in. I wanted that. I wanted to be that calm. I wanted to be that, you know, that quote unquote hero. And that's what I pictured it as, you know, these are the people who are going to come and save the day when I can't. And I wanted to be that. And that's, I just wanted to strive to be there. And I'm, I'm finally there, you know, I'm finally that position. I realize it's a lot different than I thought it was going to be. Right. Um, you know, it's not, it's not the the glamor and the everything that I thought it was going to be. And that's a lot of why I try to, to get out the message I do. Um, because we're humans just like everyone else. And we're paramedics just like everyone else and nurses just like everyone else. We just, are expected to be calm. And that's what I like bringing to it. Yeah. And that's something that I've been trying to tell people. And that's part of the message that I've been trying to get out is that we are normal people doing abnormal jobs. That's Mm -hmm. all it is. Uh, We choose to do the abnormal jobs and then we choose to have to react and be a certain way. It's a choice to act that way, to be that way. We are not like that all the time. We have to learn to be that way. Right. And the idea that we're expected to be that way, I think is kind of a hindrance on us as civil service, because then if we show quote unquote weakness or we show feeling or emotion that's not constructive to the job or makes us look like we might be a detriment to the job 
is a hindrance, I really think, because no, it's not a hindrance. We're still human beings, remember? We can still feel things. We still get touched by things. And we have to work a kid if we have to work a mom. If, you know, people are around us yelling to save them, screaming, all that other stuff, we still get affected by it. It's, it's just we choose to deal with it or right. deal with it the best way we can. When and where do you find yourself or did you find yourself? When did that realization hit you that, okay, I'm, I am just a human being and this job is maybe asking a lot that I wasn't prepared for? Because I've noticed that, that that sentiment has hit all of us at one point. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, some of us embrace it and realize it and other, us, other ones of us ignore it. Mm -hmm. um, for me personally, so I went through, I, I, I had a, um, a triple threat when I was probably back in, it was 2000, uh, 2013, essentially. So I, um, I had th basically three events that happened in my career that led me to the realization that I, I was human and that I, I see a lot of things that a lot of people don't and deal with a lot of things that a lot of people shouldn't. Um, one was my partner committing suicide uh, because of his demons and things he was going through made me realize that, you know, we don't, we don't take care of ourselves. Like we take care of other people. And that was the first time it was like, you know, all right, maybe, maybe there's some things I should start looking at because he was perfectly fine. You know, you wouldn't know that this was going to happen and it happened. And that made me start to think, um, the, the second was the, um, the Boston marathon bombing, you know, being part of that and being and working while that was all happening. And then the after effects of that, the, the realization that other people now, you know, the general public are seeing things that we see every day and how they're reacting to it made me realize that my reaction was not normal. I was like, all right, let's get in there. Let's do this. Let's, you know, the phone, the calls are going to keep coming in. You know, we got to, we got to just do our best job. You know, the rest of the city shut down, but we're still working. All right, let's do it. Whereas everyone else is, you know, mourning and everything. Like, and we're not. So it made me realize that we're, we're not normal in that sense. And the third was when I was um, working as a dispatcher and it, I picked up the phone. It, this was just one of our business lines. Um, somebody called in and said that their kid wasn't waking up. And the more and more we found out, we found out this mother actually basically killed her child, beat him to the point where he didn't wake up anymore. And going through and explaining on the phone exactly yeah. what she did. And then, you know, seeing the other people that surrounded me and their reactions, you know, they were going through and listening to the call because it was being investigated and everything like this and, you know, weeping and, and making sure I'm okay. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, how am I okay with this? You know, there, there's something wrong with me that I need to work on reconnecting with that, you know, no emotion whatsoever to, to essentially these three events. And I realized that if I keep going down this path, it's just going to implode me. And I need to start reconnecting with that human side of me. If I don't do that, it's just, it's not going to end well for anybody. Cause how can I help somebody else if I can't help myself? You know, if I can't connect with a patient who's having an emotional battle, how, you know, I can't be any, I can't be any good for them, you know? 
So it really made me think, you know, I need to start reconnecting with the human. I need to start having emotions again. I need to start letting things affect me in the appropriate way. You know, I'm not saying, you know, somebody dies and I go and throw myself on the floor and start bawling. No, but I handle it the appropriate way. And that was really when it started, you know, affecting my relationship, affecting my family life, everything like that. And I really realized I needed to start helping myself to be human again. I think that what I'm hearing from you, granted, of course, we're both not mental health experts. However, we do deal with mental health patients all the time. We deal with mental health with our fellow uh, brothers and sisters in the service. But what I'm hearing from you is this coping mechanism that I think all of us have when a job or when the tone drops, right? We have learned in this service to separate the human emotion from the job. We almost have to dehumanize it so we can do the job correctly, right? Right. When we go to a car wreck, while it looks horrible, horrendous, there's blood, there's whatever, and you know, the general population sees it and it freaks them out. There's it's chaos. But to us, it's okay. This is how the cars cut. Okay. This is where I need to cut. This is how we're going to get the patient out without hurting them anymore. This is what we need to do while we're getting them cut out. Uh, let's get this over here. Let's get the backboard over there. Let's set this up. Let's get an IV started since we can't get them out. It's taking a little bit longer to get them out. It becomes a job. It right. becomes a job. And we have to dehumanize the patient and think of it as a job the the we have to do these steps to get this patient out and then once they're out there's these other set of steps we have to do to keep them alive and then it's not until everything's said and done we pass them off at the hospital we can kind of stop and reflect a little bit and be like holy crap you know but it sounds like what happened with you and correct me if i'm wrong the idea of it being a job kind of just stuck. Exactly. And that, that it just, it got stuck in your head. Right. I got stuck in that mode of I'm at work. I got to put it away. I'm at work. I got to put it away. And it just never, it was just this endless cycle of call would come in, call would end, call would come in, call would end. Even at home, it's one of those I'm constantly thinking about work, not being able to disconnect myself and being able to process everything that I'm seeing and hearing and feeling and just ignoring it because I couldn't do it at work. And I had done it for a certain amount of time without any help. And then it just got stuck there. I, I've noticed that because that happened to me too. And it caused some marital issues at one point and it caused some family issues where when any type of an emotional uh, uh, fight or uh, argument or, you know, whether it be finances or whatever, well, you did this and it made me feel this way. And I was like, well, why are you feeling that way? It just happened, you know, just let it right. go, whatever. And you, we disconnected those human emotions that most people have, that general people have. And when we just react, we just react because that's what we do on the job. We just react. It becomes a job. We see something, we know that there's an emotional con uh, connection that's usually there, but we put it away. We put it away and then we deal with it. We react, we mitigate, and then we go on. We right. forget about it. Where when you're at home, it doesn't work that way. You have to deal with those things. Those are things that are important to deal with, but we forget how to do that because uh, we've been trained right. to forget how to do it. We trained our brain to forget how to do it. We trained our brain to forget how to deal because 
if we were emotional on every call that we went to, we probably wouldn't be able to do a whole lot of the calls. You know, exactly. we'd be crying half the time. Yeah, <laughs> being right. upset. So it, I, I found that to be kind of a little bit of a commonality with civil service uh, personnel that being able to find that balance of allowing yourself to disconnect on the job, but then reconnecting when you, you know, clock out, that reconnecting part is a little bit hard for a lot of us to actually do. Right. It's just, and I tell everyone this, as soon as you clock out, that job stops, you know, and unfortunately, a lot of the people that we all hang out with are people in our field, you know, and it's just, it's the way it is. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to know that when we hang out with these people, we don't just talk about the job, you know, it's okay to because we have to we have to decompress. It's how we process things. But at home, you know, everything can't be about that. You have to clock out and you have to leave it at work and then deal with it in the appropriate manner, not taking it out on your family, not taking it out on your friends, not talking about it every waking minute of every day. As hard as that is for us, because we're all, you know, we're all one uppers. You know what I mean? We're all, you're going to tell this story and I'm going to tell this story. That's the way it's going to be. (laughs) But we we love it in all reality. You know what I mean? It's just, it's how we do. And honestly, it's how we get better because guess what? I want to be the best person I can be to help your family member, to save your family, to save your house, to, to whatever it is that we do. So that's why we are the way we are, but we got to learn to shut it off at times. It defines us, but we can't let it define us all the time. No, absolutely not. We can't. When, when did you start wanting to be an advocate and when did you start having the idea of sharing uh, what you share on your Instagram and on your TikTok um, with sharing the mental health stuff, with sharing general knowledge that we know as civil service, but it sounds like you're dumbing it, quote unquote, dumbing <laughs> it down, um, not because the general public's dumb, but because sometimes it's really hard to understand if you're not in the life but you are making it more simple to understand the information that you're putting out there. Where did that idea come from and why did you start doing it? So it kind of hit me. So I went through um, the peer crisis intervention course and the group crisis intervention course um, for CISD debriefings and all that fun stuff. CISD stands for critical incident stress debriefing for everybody that does not know what that means. Right. And unfortunately, most people don't know what it means, which is part of the problem. But we'll talk about that. (laughs) Um, So I went through all that training. And essentially what that training does is it it debriefs you. It shows you how to debrief other people, but at the same time, debriefing yourself. And I went through this training after those three events I talked about earlier. And I realized I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm this is I'm not okay to be able to deal with anybody else. I can't I can't help anybody else because I am like spun up. Like, so I went through, I got some help for myself. Um, and it was at that point where I started talking to people about kind of my experience and I got a lot of the kickback that I'm sure you've seen and maybe even gotten of the, no, I'm fine. No, I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. You know, we're we're all too tough for that. And I realized that a lot of people won't talk to you face to face about it, but a lot of people need a reminder that you need to start taking care of yourself. So for our coworkers and our colleagues and our peers spreading that word of it's okay to not be okay. You know, here's my story. You don't need to talk to somebody like me about your story, but here's your reminder that it's okay for you to not be okay and go get the help. Start taking care of yourself. For me, I realized that a lot of people now seem to open up 
they'll come to me and say, you know, Hey, I saw this, you reminded me that I have this going on and I went and got some help, you know, just that gentle reminder and not forcing them, not saying, you know, Hey, you need to go sit down and you need to talk to this person or we're going to take you off the job. That's not the way to do it because that's a good way to get to someone to shut down. So basically just reminding people over and over and over just in subtle little ways that you need to start taking care of yourself. I found is much more effective than walking up to somebody and saying, talk to me, you know, and that's the whole goal is between us we need to, we need to take care of ourselves and remind each other, but for the general public, even there's so many people who, like we talked about earlier, they see us as heroes. They see us as this, you know, we're untouchable. We're invincible. You know, we never show emotion. And that's part of the problem, honestly, is we have this image we have to uphold. So if we can show the general public too, that we may not be okay, even though we're showing up to help you out and being, you know, on our A game, it'll help other people remember when they interact with us, you know, face-to-face, they're hanging out with us as friends and stuff like that, that maybe our reaction to them saying something or doing something was because of something else or something we've dealt with recently. And I think a lot of people just don't realize that. A lot of people don't want to realize that. But I think just subtle little reminders that everybody has something going on is the best way to get through to people because then they think about it themselves without somebody forcing it on them. I agree with you. And it's interesting to hear it coming from your perspective because you're, you're a flight medic. And so your crew is a crew of three or four, I'm assuming. Three, you yeah. have You have your pilot, your nurse, and the medic, yep. um, which is pretty common, I think, for a lot of life flight or, you know, flight medic, the, the, the realm of helicopter ambulance, quote right. unquote. Um, do, have you found that that realm of the job of civil service have you found that to be have you found them to adopt that idea about self-help and mental health um and the reason why i ask because in the fire service it's a fairly new um topic that is becoming quote unquote popular, right? It's a new, it's fairly new to start talking about this openly within the fire service in general. And the, and I can only speak for the fire service because <laughs> it's what I'm in. It's what I've noticed. Right. Uh, just a couple of years ago, I like you went through a peer support group that the international association of firefighters, the national union, um, had put on, they put on training for peer supporters. So you can be somebody in your department that somebody can come talk to. Now they're not teaching you how to treat them in any way, shape or form. They're teaching you on how to help put somebody in the right direction if they need it. Right. Um, have you found the realm that you're in adopt that and be more open to getting that training, to having people come out and say, hey, I have something that I need to talk about, stuff like that? Or is it still kind of a taboo topic around? So I think it's even worse, honestly. Um, Oh, really? So so you're just going in the opposite direction. So it's heading the right direction, but I think we're about 10 steps behind public safety. Um, You know, you walk into a hospital, into an emergency room and stuff like that. All you do is see people moving. Very rarely do you see people actually sitting down and thinking and you know what I mean? In public safety, we have a lot of time to think. So we have a lot of time to process. A lot of the nurses and things like that that I work with, they are so busy during their shifts, whether it's an ICU, whether it's an ER, whether it's, 
whatever it is, they don't have time to even think about anything. Then by the time they go home, they're exhausted. So their brain doesn't even process what they've seen until they have, you know, three or four days off. And then that's when they start processing. But by the time they go back to work, they haven't processed anything. And so you're bringing in paramedics and nurses from two very different backgrounds in the hospital they'll do, you know, if there's a pediatric code that comes in or a patient who's been a patient for a long time comes in who then passes away or something like that, they'll do certain things, you know, they'll, they'll have debriefings and stuff, but it's not the same that you and I know. It's just, it's right. more of a, you know, a chaplaincy thing or a um, palliative care thing or something like that. It's not a true debriefing. And I think a lot of the nurses who come in don't know much about CISD, CISM. I think part of that too is um, a lot of us who come in, the paramedics come in, a lot of paramedics come into flight medicine for the wrong reason. They come into it because they want to be a hero. They want that flight suit. They want to be that person that, you know, shows up in the helicopter and saves the day. But in all reality, that's not what we're there for. You know, we, we as people are there to bring extra skills. You know, we are not heroes. We're not anything better than you. We just know a little bit more or we have additional tools. You know, so if we go in, we come in here with the expectation of being a hero, we're going to completely ignore everything else that bothers us. And we're just going to be a hero all the time because we can't let anything bother us. So you bring in people who are the nurses who don't know anything about peer support or or debriefings or anything like that. And then you have the hero mentality and you combine that together. You're going to have a whole washing machine full of full of laundry that never gets clean. You know, um, thankfully it's heading in the right direction. A lot of programs, um, like Boston med flight has a huge, great peer support program. A lot of programs are starting to develop these peer support programs. So it really is trying to start. But I think that until we get the healthcare system in general, hospitals, nursing homes, even everything to start getting on board, um, it's going to be hard for these nurses to come in with a clean slate entering into flight medicine and same thing with getting rid of the mentality of the heroes who want the flight suit only and don't care about anything else. We got to get rid of that too, but we're heading down the right path. Thankfully, finally. It's interesting to hear your point of view because the, I, I forget that you're very, very closely tied to the hospital realm and not so much, you know, the front line on the ground, you know, with fire and, cops and EMS. And it's interesting to hear that, yeah, you do deal a lot more with the hospital realm than the medic realm, really. You're there on a scene for maybe 10 minutes for patient transfer, and then you're off. And then now everything's in the in the helicopter while you're treating, and then with the nurses when you transfer patient care to the ER, the trauma unit, whatever. That is, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting difference that even though we're all dealing with the same thing, all of us are dealing with the same call, right? Right. The cop that shows up first on scene and then fire and EMS that have to do the job to get the patient secure and start treatment. And then calling you guys to come because either traffic's bad or we don't have the tools or the patient isn't just that much trouble that they need to get to the hospital faster than we can, whatever. But then it's you guys. And then from you, you're transferring that patient to the hospital, to the ER, there where that patient's either going to get stabilized or, you know, God forbid, they they pass. 
But even if, even if they do get stabilized, now they're in the ICU. So now you have ICU nurses and doctors. And then after the ICU, then you have the floor nurses and doctors in the recovery area having to. And so it's crazy how we're all tied to just one call, right. one call. You could have one thousands of people, that, hundreds of people tied to one person. Tied to one patient, one person, one thing that happened, one traumatic event that happened, and all of us are tied, but yet we're all expected to deal with what happened differently. Right. Now, we may see different parts of that story, but it's still all the same story. Right. So why is it, why should we have to deal with it any different than you or them or, you know, it, we're all tied to it. And then, and then we're all tied to the patient and their family. Mm-hmm. You know, we're tied, all those things tie into it. And I think we forget about all those little nuances. And then we expect, like, we expect to act differently. We expect to quote unquote, we eat. And I think, and I've been guilty of it too where, oh, well, it's the nurse, the nurses, I mean, we did most of the work, you know, or the doctor, the doctor wasn't there and he didn't have to stabilize this. He's just fixing what we stabilized. And, you know, but that, that shouldn't matter because it's still a traumatic event. It's still not normal for human beings to see that on a day-to-day basis. And we forget that. One of the biggest things that it didn't really hit me until I saw it happen working as a flight medic and, you think about a scene, whether it's a, you know, an accident, whatever it may be, but a, a scene where somebody was working, doing whatever, and then they have an incident where they have an amputation now, a hand, a leg, something like that. You know, as EMS providers, stuff like that, we turn it off, send them away, send them to the hospital, send them to the air crew, whatever it is. And that's pretty much where we stop thinking about it. The one thing that I never realized that I didn't think about is that person woke up perfectly able, perfectly able to do whatever they want to do. They can walk, they can talk, they can pick things up if it was a hand. Now they have to go through and change their entire life from that one incident. They don't have a leg now. They don't have a foot now. They don't have a hand now. Me being able to process the fact that I woke up with all my extremities and now I'm missing something. I can't, like being able to process that is, it's beyond me. And having to be able to care for that patient the physical side, the mental side, the emotional side, everything is, is what people forget about. And like you said, it's just, we don't think about that as medics and firefighters in the field, but having seen that now in the hospital about how many times the depression, these people go through the change of life, they go through all that from such a simple thing that we think of it's an amputation, easy tourniquet off, close it up. They go home. Right. But the depression that these people go through, they can't, you know, they were lefty, they lost a left hand, they have to relearn everything now. And that's something that we don't often think about. And to me, that hit me hard when I saw it. Um, Because you just, uh, you can't fathom it, you know, and learning about that and realizing it really changed the way that I think about patients as a whole. That I can relate to that story. (laughs) And I think that I kind of got on that line of thinking where, where you're, what you were saying, you know, when you wake up and we kind of take for granted about the small things, right? Like having both our hands. Right. Um, I was actually doing a rotation during my uh, intermediate at a major trauma center here in the Houston area. And 
flight medics brought in a guy that was in a rollover and his arm got amputated from the shoulder down. But they but they also but they had the arm, right? They had the arm and the guy came in and I was able to be at the elevator when they came down and the guy was saying his hand hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, his hand was hurting really bad. And all I can think to myself was your hand is 10 feet behind you in an ice box right now. How, how are you? What? Right. And that's when, you know, you just start going, Whoa, like how, how is this guy going to really feel later on when he has to actually truly know and realize and the ketamine wears off or whatever they gave him. And now he has to relive life in a completely new way. Right. And I literally was, I would go, I went home. I was just like, what the hell would I do? What would I do? You just can't Uh, process it. I mean, you're you're trying to sit there and like hold your hand, like under your shirt, but then you still realize you're using it. It's like, how do you, how do you do that? You can't put your arm behind your back. It's it's still there. You, You still have that whole, I still have it. I'm pretending right now, but right. That's not the real thing. Right. And, being able to even at least try to understand, I think, is something that we need to try to do a little bit more as civil service personnel. We need to try to understand just a little bit more. But it, again, on the on the same token, though, if we if we try to understand too much, we're gonna we got to be careful in not allowing ourselves getting caught up in it, right? Because we still have a job to do. It's a fine, fine line. Yeah, there's a very see. fine line, exactly. How long have you been in this service real quick? I'm sorry. I, I never got that. So I've been with a program I'm with now for a year. Um, okay. Prior to that, I was with a pediatric critical care transport um, unit where we transported by ground mostly. Um, and all, all we did was kids. So, and that was about a year and a half I worked there. Okay. How long have you been in a, a civil service member? Oh, I've uh, been okay. uh, 13 years. 13 years in total. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're actually pretty, pretty similar in, in time and service. Yep. Different job aspects, but time and service for sure. Right. Where where are you looking to go from here, man? Where are you looking to what are you are you planning on just retiring as a flight medic or are you planning on doing something else? Uh, so I don't know what I want to be when I grow up yet. Um, (laughs) you know what I, I, whenever somebody asks me that question, I feel dumb because it's like, you know, where do you go? Where do you go from here? You know, um, I love what I do. I really do. I know someday either physically or mentally, I'm not going to be able to do this job anymore. Um, and I have to prepare for that, but I don't want to admit it right now because I am still so new to it. Um, but I don't know. I've thought about um, other things such as, you know, PA school or respiratory therapy, um, things like that, or even just something completely different like engineering, you know, Um, it's hard to, it's hard to come to the realization that you're going to have to do something different in the future or you're going to have to retire, you know, but with the physical demands of this job these days and you having to have to be in it for 25 years or however long you have to be in it, um, you, you do have to prepare, you know, one injury could be a career ending injury, you know, and I think a lot of us forget about that until we get to the point of actually having that injury. Um, right. 
I'm, I guess you could say I'm lucky enough to have had an injury where my career could have ended at that point. Um, but thankfully I was able to recover from it. I just, it was, it was a simple injury. I tore the cartilage in my knee, you know, it was a simple injury, but that could be career ending for someone who doesn't recover from it appropriately. And it made me realize that I need to have a backup plan, but I, I still have no idea what I want to do from now. So you don't really have a five-year plan right now? My five-year plan now is to be the best flight medic I can be um, and get and kind of, you know, uh, you never perfect your craft, but get as close as I can, you know, learn as much as I can, do as much as I can um, to really get down to it and be really good at what I do. And then in the meantime, probably go back to school, work on my gen ed, all that stuff. I don't, I've never gone to college, so I don't, you know, have any of that stuff. So I do have stuff I can work on in the meantime. Um, but I just don't know where I want to end up yet. In five years, I still want to be where I am, but I want to have a, I want to have a plan. All right. Well, that's, I mean, look, like for me, the whole five year plan is to promote, right. To a higher rank, right. uh, to Lieutenant is kind of where I want to spend most of my career in. And then just any and all training that comes my way, take it, just continue to learn. That's my five year plan. Really. And because once you're in a career where you feel like you where you belong, where you belong, when you start thinking about what your plans are to advance career wise, you're thinking, well, I'm where I'm at already. Right. How how can I really advance when I'm already where I want to be? So what I had to do is find what I can do within my career to advance. And that for me is, you know, more training more certifications that allow me to do more parts of the job, stuff like that. So, you know, retirement for me doesn't really look like retirement because I'll, I'm, I will be able to retire at a fairly young age, early fifties. And I want to, I've always loved being an instructor. Um, I like teaching. Um, and I find that that's the realm that I'm finding myself really pushing towards. At the same time, I have found this new passion in mental health within the service. I have found wanting to share the story and help my brothers and sisters in civil service in general to, I, I want to make a dent in that suicide rate that is continuing to climb in civil service. And I want to be a part of that. I want to help. Um, and the reason being is because I was almost a part of that statistic. And it's not a great feeling to admit that, but it needs to be said. It needs to be admitted. I need to be able to be okay with saying it out loud because it is a part of what happens with us. And so when I finally realized that I want to be a part of that change, I'm, I'm really starting now to rethink that five-year plan. You know, where do I really want to just be a fire instructor or do I want to advocate for this and start sharing my story a little bit more? Um, part of the reason why I'm doing the podcast is so I can share that story and not only my story, but like your story as well. Um, other people's stories that are willing to open up and talk about the things that brought them to those points, because I think it's those stories that 
when people hear, especially people within the service, and it's like, holy shit, he's saying everything that I have felt. I just haven't been able to say it, or I was too scared to say it, or I wasn't really sure there was going to be any help. And being able to hear that somebody did help, or there is routes that I can take, or there is somebody that I can talk to, they can reach out to me, you know, or they can reach out to somebody that I've talked to, or they can reach out to somebody that's close to them and feel more comfortable with, but it allows them to reach out, which I, like you were saying earlier, I think is the beginning. It's literally the first step to becoming better, right? Mental health in general uh, doesn't affect everybody the same. Um, my depression can be different from somebody else's depression. My ADHD affects me differently than somebody else's ADHD. And that's the crazy thing with mental health. It's not like diabetes, you know, depending on the type of diabetes, it's either you're going to get insulin or you're going to get sugar, right. you know, and that's your treatment plan. Um, but with mental health, you have depression, shit, it can take 15 different meds before you find the one that works. It can take 15 different types of cognitive behavioral therapies. It can take three or four different therapists before you find the one that actually starts helping. I mean, it does not work the same as general medicine. Absolutely. Um, And I'm going to ask you a little bit of a personal question. Since you do advocate for mental health and you do advocate for the peer support and all that other stuff, have you ever had to find help that way? Um, And what was the process for you? Like for me, I was blessed enough uh, that the union that I worked for helped me a lot. And I was blessed in that even though some of the higher ups do know what I'm going through, they didn't pull me off the truck um, because I'm still able to do the job and not put myself or anybody else into any type of detriment. Mm hmm. So what was it, what did it look like for you? So for me, um, it was a lot of denial in the beginning. Um, it was a lot of, you know, I'm going to go talk to this person. I talked to him one time and I didn't feel any better, you know? So there were, there were lots of times where I just wanted to give up and realize that it wasn't, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't for me, you know, I'm fine. I they're, they're not doing anything for me, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, but then I finally found someone who basically said, shut up and talk, you know, shut up and stop with excuses and just talk. And that was, I, I realized I found the person who I could talk to. Um, it takes, like you say, three or four times to find the right person to talk to. Very rarely will you walk into a therapist's office and have the right person. You know, they might help you a little bit and then you plateau. And a lot of them, especially the good ones, will tell you, you know, I might not be the right person for you the first time you walk into that office. You know, finally, I found someone who would listen to me in the way that I wanted them to listen to me. Like I was talking, me and you sitting here talking, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what I needed. I needed somebody who wasn't just going to sit there with their pad in the corner with their eyeglasses down on their nose and say, uh-huh, uh-huh. No, I needed someone who number one needed to validate me that what I was feeling was real because I didn't validate it myself and that they were going to listen, you know, and then that's what really ended up helping me. This was the fourth person I went to and it was a point where I was about ready to give up. And then that's when I really started getting help. I walked out of there, you know, sometimes when you walk out of a therapist's office, they open the floodgates and it takes two or three days to recover from that. You know, so you need to remember that it's not an instant fix. It's not going to be, 
they make you feel worse and that's what they're trying to do. No, they're making you feel worse sometimes because it'll help you feel better in the end because it'll give you emotions that you haven't felt in 10 years, you know? And then there's other things like I went through some EMDR as well. I actually um, had my second treatment just a couple of weeks ago. It, it's great. It, it, it's not for everybody. Let me make that clear. Um, you know, but it, it is great. It sometimes it's, you know, takes two sessions. Sometimes it takes four sessions. You know, mine was four and it started helping to the point where I could really go back to my therapist and start talking. You know, it was two different people that I went to and it really helped. So the, my biggest advice I give to everybody is don't give up. If you're going to give up on yourself, that's fine. Give up on yourself. But think about all the other people who you're giving up on by giving up on yourself, your family, if you have family, your friends, you know, your peers, all of the patients that you could help in the future, all of the, you know, all of the people that you could touch in your life, because we don't just touch ourselves. You know, that sounds weird. I know, but we don't, (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll let that part out. Um, No, no, I'm going to keep it just because, you know, of course, I, I want, I'm going to let the civil service and firefighters dog you for that one. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> but you know, our lives, and, and this is goes for anybody who's listening, public, civil servants, military, anybody, the lives you touch aren't just your own. Something as simple as going to the grocery store and seeing somebody who's walking a cart back to their, you know, back to one of the cart corrals and you take that cart from them, you just touch their life. You know, you made them see that somebody is good. And that could be the difference between life and death for some people. And you have to remember that you have that effect on every single person you walk by. And that's how you should live your life. Like everything you do is benefiting somebody else. And in that you're going to benefit yourself in the end. So if you give up on yourself, do it. That's fine. But think about everybody else. You know, don't give up. Don't let it be the final day that you say that, you you know, this is it, you know, Keep going on because it does get better. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your problem is. It will get better. It always does. It might get worse before it gets better, but it will get better. I promise you that. And so I'm going to play devil's advocate here, right? Yep. Um, Anxiety, we know, is worrying about the future that doesn't really necessarily exist yet. Right. Right. It's uh, what if this happens? What if that happens? You know, this might happen, that might happen. And then we get panicked and then panic attacks ensue, anxiety attacks ensue, all that other stuff. How can you say that that kind of process? And I get this a lot. And I even asked the question when I was at my lowest is how do you know it's going to get better? Like, how do you know? You know, like, that's just like saying, that's just like a therapist telling me, how do you know it's going to get worse? How do you know it's going to, how do you know all those bad things you're thinking are really going to happen? You know, you don't, but you worry about them. And then you have somebody like us who tell you, you know, it will get better. It will just, you just got to keep fighting. It will get better. It will get better. But then you have those people that are like, well, how do you know? You're telling me not to worry about the bad stuff because it's not true. It's not happened yet. But you're telling me to believe in the good stuff, even though it's not true and it hasn't happened yet. So how can you fight that argument? I always tell them that the reason that I know it will get better is because I'm standing six feet above the ground instead of buried six feet below it. Me and thousands of other people who have gone through and gotten the help and stuck through it you know, it doesn't always work for every single person, but a lot of times people will make a lot of realizations about themselves that, you know, 
it's something that they're doing that they are, you know, and don't get me wrong. This isn't saying that anxiety is your fault. That's not what I'm trying to say at all, but they'll realize that something that they're doing is causing worse anxiety. You know, maybe it wasn't the therapy that helps. Maybe it was something in yourself that you realized, but it will get better because it does get better. Life does not stay the same ever from yesterday, today to an hour ago to now everything changes, you know, for better or for worse. But the thing is it works. I've seen it work and I'm living proof of it. If you want to hear my story, I'll tell you my story. And guess what? It's different than yours, but there may be one little aspect of my story or somebody else's story that I can share with you that will make you realize that the path you go down will help you. And that to me is one of the best arguments against it is showing proof. Right. And the proof is sitting right here. We're both talking to you. We're both talking to each other and talking to you through each other. We're, we're here. We're the proof. We're the proof. We're the future. We're that future that you can't see in yourself yet. So that's, that's how we can fight that stigma of, well, how do you know? Well, we know because we're here and we're talking together and we're talking to you through that. And anybody listening that's going through anything, reach out. We're here to help. It does get better. And the reason why we know that is because we are here. Right. We both probably asked that question ourselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I said it before. I did ask that question. So, you know, that was one of the first things I told my therapist, you know. I was such a dark place and I questioned every fucking thing she told me. Everything she told Oh, well, if you think it, I was like, yeah, but this way, if I'm going to think about it this way, you have to think about it this way too. If this is a possibility, this is a possibility too. But what the difference is, is what are you wanting to concentrate on? What are right. you wanting? You want to feel better. You're tired of feeling shitty. So why do you keep thinking about the shitty shit? Right. Right. It's this weird thing, right? It's like we go to a therapist. We want to get better. We're tired of feeling sad and upset and angry all the time. We're tired of being anxiety ridden. But then when somebody tells you, well, think about this good part and then you fight it. Why do you fight it? Why do we fight it? Why do we fight it? Just like anything else, you know? Yeah. We we want to feel better. We are tired of feeling this way. So when somebody tells us, here's a way to stop feeling that way, we fight it. And it's like, um, we're, we're literally, they're literally telling you how you can start not feeling that way anymore, but you're fighting them. You're fighting, you're fighting to stay in that state of mind. And that is your depression. That is your anxiety winning that battle within your head. When you start fighting those, those ideas that people are trying to tell you, Hey, it can get better. Just keep fighting. Well, how do you know? Well, that question right there, that's your anxiety. Your anxiety asks that question. Your depression asks that question right there. Mm-hmm. You can allow and beat that depression anxiety by saying, you know what? You're right. It can get better. You know? Absolutely. 100%. 100%. All right, man. Um, well, I usually like, we went over through a lot of good stuff. Um, I wanted to get a little bit more into the whole flight medic aspect of it, but I think we kind of passed that. <laughs> I, I think we kind of, I think we lost that, that, you know, tie in. That's and all right. I don't want to do, I don't want to do a whole lot of editing. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to, 
we're going to reschedule something where we can yeah. actually talk about the job a little bit more in the differences. Absolutely. Um, but I wanted to get you on mainly because of the whole mental health aspect and because of the, the stuff that you're putting out there on Instagram and on TikTok and being an advocate for mental health, especially within the civil service realm for firefighters, paramedics, flight medics, nurses, doctors, uh, cops, EMTs. You guys, we are human first. We are human first. Do not let the idea that we are superhumans because of the job that we are doing, don't let that define on how you think you should react. You're a human being. It's okay to have the emotions that we have. We are just normal people doing abnormal jobs, but we choose to do these abnormal jobs. So we have to choose to be able to take care of ourselves while we're doing the jobs. And that includes both physically and I think a little bit more importantly, mentally, because if you're not right mentally, how the hell are you going to want to be right physically? Yep. Brains and blood, just like everybody else. Exactly. Uh, Brian, I like to close out my part of the show. I usually do about three questions. Um, it, the first one's a little bit twofold and it can either spark a lot of the times when, when I, when a guest answers a question, it, it reminds me of something and I like to talk. So I'll start going off no on that idea or remind me of something. First one's a little bit of a uh, twofold question. Uh, now you do have a podcast. Um, so this will be a little bit easier, I think for you to answer, uh, but say you were doing your podcast or you're doing mine, you're a host of what makes us fire. And your guest was Brian, that flight medic. What's the one question you would have asked him or yourself or piece of information you'd want to share that maybe I didn't get to um, or I didn't ask? So the one thing I always like to know is, and one thing I love to share as well, is what is a favorite quote that kind of defines on who you live by? You know, how you live, how you live your life. Um and for me, it's always, you're never wrong to do the right thing. It's a Mark Twain quote. Say that one more time. You're never wrong to do the right thing. And to me, that speaks on every aspect of life. You know, anything from you and I sitting here, have a conversation, having the right conversation. You know what I mean? Respecting each other. When it comes to, in our field, we make an error. We do something that maybe cause harm to somebody else. Have that integrity to go and speak up, you know? if you live your life and the fact that everything that you're doing is with the best intentions and realize that we mess up every now and then you're never going to be wrong. People are always going to respect you. You know, it just, to me, that is the best way to live your life. I, I would challenge that you're never wrong to do the right thing because sometimes people will do something with the best of intentions and fuck it up for everyone. (laughs) It, it is true. It is true. <laughs> so even though you had the best of intentions and you thought it was completely right, you have to, I think, make sure it's right for the right reasons. And that is true. That is absolutely true. Don't just do it because you feel it's right, but know why it's right too. You know, there you go. There you go. I think that needs yeah. to be explained a little bit. You need to also know it's right, not just for you, but for more than just you, because at that point, then it's just a selfish thought and then you're not necessarily right. right. True. But be a, be a, to go along with that too, if you did do it because you just thought it was the right thing, but you didn't think all the way through, have the integrity to go through and say, I fucked up. 
you know, and know oh, that. Oh, thank th- you for saying that. You know, oh my God. That's what it's all about is having that integrity to be able to go and say, I fucked up and here's how I'm going to fix it. Or, you know, I'm not the right person to fix this, but I fully accept what I did was wrong. You know, we all screw up. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you think you're perfect. You're not. Right. And, and I thank you for explaining that. And I thank you for allowing me to kind of challenge that because yeah. while, while that saying is true, and, you know, you're never wrong if you do the right thing. I think I need just a little bit more explanation because I right. don't want people to think that, well, I thought it was the right thing. And right. so you have this idea that you're never wrong. No, right. no, 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 no. That's not how it works. <laughs> you got to do the right thing. Know it's the right thing. And then if it isn't and you did have good intentions, be, quote unquote, man enough, have the integrity be woman enough, whatever, have the integrity to say my intentions were good. However, it was wrong. I fucked up. How can I fix it? If I can't fix it, allow me to be a part of fixing it. I'm sorry. My intentions were good. I didn't mean to hurt anybody, whatever, but be that person. Don't be that person that says, well, my intentions were good. And then just walk away. Right. You you, you clean up the mess. Exactly. Because then your integrity stays with you. And then people will really see that, yes, he was trying to do the right thing or she was trying to do the right thing. It might have not been the right thing, but at least they're admitting and then wanting to fix it. So I think integrity has to go along with that saying. 100%. 100%. Awesome. Uh, My second to last question to you is a fairly simple one. Do you have any questions for me? Uh, You can ask me anything. You've been open and honest. You've given your ideas and your thought processes and what you're doing and how you're advocating. I'm an open book. If I can't answer it, I'll be respectful in saying, uh, shut up, Brian. I can't answer that. Uh, (laughs) Ask me another question. <laughs> but yeah, is there anything you want to ask me? Anything you want to know? Anything maybe your listeners might want to know? Um, another thing I like to ask is always, you know, what is the one thing that keeps you going every day that gets you out of bed? Wow. There's always one. Everybody always has one thing every single day that gets you out of bed. And most people don't even think about it. And that's what always sparks my curiosity. That's actually a really good question. And I would have to be honest in saying that I don't know if it's just one thing. It might be more than one. Yeah. But at I least think, one. I think obviously for me right now, I, I, and I, I'm with you. I think it, it, it changes as your life progresses and Absolutely. the things that you, that you have to get done and need to get done changes. You, you know, your, your purpose changes as you go. Absolutely. If I had to break it down to like the one basic thing, it would be I have to get up. I have to get out of bed. I have to personally, I feel like I have to be a change in somebody's life. I have to be a part of a change whether it be my kids, my wife, uh, being a part of a call that helps a patient survive, uh, being on the crew, um, talking to somebody, uh, making a TikTok video that makes somebody smile, (laughs) being stupid, making somebody laugh, um, 
and it's more than just being a change for somebody else because in that being that for somebody it's for me too it's a bit selfish right and i think it kind of has to be for everybody i think that selfish selfishness is not a bad selfishness in that if you're able to be the best you you can be the best you for everybody else around you 100% so and and in this for me and the way i'm what i'm telling you is a fairly new idea for me because i literally just you know i've started a new treatment plan for my depression which got really bad just you know a couple months ago um so this idea that i've had in my head prior to that i got up thinking is i have to find some prior to that my whole reason for getting up and getting out of bed was searching for a reason to live now when i wake up and i get up i want to be that hope for somebody else to live that's why i get up i get awesome. up out of bed because i want to be a part of that hope whether it be just hey thank you for doing your job all the way up to you know being thanked for being a part of saving somebody's life to helping somebody move to just being a better me and then in the process learning to love myself and knowing that i'm worthy of the love that i feel i deserve because once i really believe that then i know i can transfer that idea to into somebody else that's why i get up in the morning now awesome Pri- yeah prior to that it was i was trying to find validation in anything and everything to keep me going and it was not a good way to live <laughs> not a good way to live yeah. it was very detrimental at least you got but, better yeah, I'm on the path. I'm still getting better, still taking med. You know, I, I started a, a, a med treatment um, and therapy and couples counseling and everything else. So uh, I'm becoming a better me and in hopes of me being a better me, I can be a better me for other people. Awesome. And that's why that's 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 my reason for getting up right now. Uh, I'm not saying it's not going to change in the future because it, it might. should change. Yeah, and it should. Um, but right now, my reason is to be a better me for other people. Awesome. That's why I get up out of bed. I like it. Yeah, I like it too. Man. <laughs> Thank you for that question. That's actually a really good question. Uh, I, I haven't been asked that. That's actually a really good question. Um, Brian, my last question for you, and at the end of the show, I usually ask a very simple question. Uh, the show is called What Makes Us Fire? Um, and it can be taken kind of both ways, right? It could be, all right, everybody, here we are. We're going to tell you what makes us civil service personnel. We're going to tell you what makes us firefighter. We're, this is us telling you what makes us fire. But I like to kind of switch it up a little bit and turn it into a question. What do you think it is that makes us fire and when i say fire i really mean like civil service personnel what makes us people to make the choice to make that sacrifice of ourselves for other people what do you think it is within all of us being as diverse as we are being as different 
with all these different backgrounds, all these different religions, belief systems, morals. We all, I mean, the civil service community is just as diverse as the general population, but we all decided to make a sacrifice of ourselves to do the job. What do you think it is? That is, what do you, what do you think it is? So I'm, I'm going to asterisk this with this classifies the people who get into this field for the right reason, who want to do it, not for the shift, not for the schedule, not for the cool uniforms, nothing like that. They're the people who want to be here, who drive to be here. And they just, they love it. Like they have the passion. You know, I, that's why I call it the passion. If you don't have the passion, you're just here for the paycheck. You know what I mean? So I'll say that, but in my opinion, it's, we see the world burn every day. We see the worst of the world. We see sick people. We see people fighting. We see people's, you know, their entire livelihood literally up in flames. We want to make the world a better place. We want to give that one person who we are interacting with, whether it be a civil dispute, whether it be a motor vehicle accident, whatever it is, we want to make their lives that much better and show them that there are people there who are there to help them in their worst time of need, whether it's a house fire, whether it's, a police issue, whether it's a medical emergency, we all want to be there to show somebody else that there is hope. I think we don't necessarily think about that. I don't think that that is a conscious reason that we do it, but I think in the end, we want to give those people hope that there is something, that there is someone there to help them regardless of what's going on with them. But that's what I feel at least. That that's a good answer. (laughs) Um, And I like that you, actress asterisks that with you know you got to have the passion first and i think it's those people that what you followed that with really applies to um do we have some of those people that are just there for the paycheck sure um however i think in this kind of line of work you have to have some type of passion some type of want to be that change to do the job because I don't think we don't get paid enough to have to deal with the shit we deal with right really I don't think we do but there are some that have found a way to deal with the shit for the meager paycheck and they don't have a passion or they started with the passion and something along the way has um made it more difficult for them to continue it. Maybe they just need a little bit of help. Maybe they need somebody to talk to, who knows, but absolutely passion, 110%, 110%. That's all I can say, man. Absolutely. That was a great answer. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I will add links to the What Makes Us Fire podcast in the show notes, as well as links to Josh's social media pages. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard on this or any other podcast, feel free to leave them on our blog, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also email us. As always, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe. You can listen to us on any of your favorite podcast services. Also, please leave a review. It's important so we can tailor our content to our listeners. Thanks again for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay grounded, and never forget, everybody goes home.